0: Oh, my friends. Today, Joel is talking to Greg, CTO of Smarsh, and they discuss how most companies are headed towards having to deal with exabytes of data, and how to set up a strategic data foundation now to future-proof your organization. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. I'm excited to talk about Smarsh and what Smarsh does. We'll get into that, but I was I was curious to learn a little bit more about like you specifically. I thought it was really interesting that you had some history with NASA and was hoping you could share with me.
1: Yeah, sure. My um, checkered past. So. Uh, I started out as kind of a young buck internet technologist uh, working at a NASA Goddard Space Flight Center on the East Coast. And this was right on the cusp of the science and technology internet becoming the commercial internet and kind of a front row seat to that happening. I had an opportunity kind of for my first command to to bootstrap a team to create a paperless procurement system using the public internet as the actual network for purchase orders and invoices, uh, all encrypted using public key cryptography. This was a big deal, right? Oh my goodness, we're gonna use public key cryptography and do what turned out to be uh, about a billion dollars worth of transactions. So we went live with this in 1993. Now you gotta understand in 1993, there really was no commercial internet, right? So Netscape went public in 95, which most people mark as the beginning of the dot-com boom. So we're going live with commercial transactions, B2B transactions over the public internet with some pretty cool tech. 1993, nobody really, I think even, you know, I'm, I'm sort of amazed that NASA headquarters even let us get away with it, right? Because uh, the internet was not considered a commercial grade network at the time. So that, that kind of lit my fire in terms of what you can do with a small team of technologists and out of a concept you can create software that kind of changes the way people do business. And that was starting to fascinating to me. And being in uh, the NASA environment, we had access to just pretty much any technology that was out there, right? So that created a unique combination of circumstances that
0: allowed us to do something that was then the you know kind of the first thing of its kind. So that's pretty cool And then back then when all that was coming about were people like Sir Tim berners-lee creator of the web at CERN or, or whatnot were they popular were they going to parties and like red carpets were they popular people or no
1: No so it, it I mean it's really interesting I have in one of my presentations I go over some of the history of this and I have Tim berners-lee first the first website. And it was just a little announcement, right? On, hey, I got this new thing that I'm launching. And, you know, you don't know at the time that the world's going to change when something like that happens. It starts very inconspicuously, but then it catches on like wildfire. And I don't think it was really until when the dot com boom started to get a lot of media attention that the pioneers of dot com actually started to get a lot of uh, notoriety, including one or two of my colleagues at NASA who uh, who got slurped into the private industry in a hurry. So it was a it was a look super interesting time because you saw it coming. You saw that wave coming. You knew it was going to change the world. You had a lot of companies getting started, a lot of which petered out, but to see something coming and try to explain to the rest of the world what was going to happen. And people had, you know, absolutely no idea. I remember having a can of Coke, right? And talking to my father and saying, everything you have is going to have one of these little web addresses on them one day, right, that are going to point you to this thing called the World Wide Web. And they're like, what in the world? He thought I'd lost my mind, right? Mm-hmm. But it was cool to to see it coming. And then, you know, when it became kind of commercialized, it actually became less hip. It became less cool because, like, we were the cool kids who sort of brought the Internet to the business side of the house. And then when the business side of the house rushed in, we are like, ah, oh, we got to go find something else different to do.
0: <laughs> oh, Yeah. And so then what would that be today? You were able to see it then, you're active in your career today. What, what is the internet thing today as far as the new thing coming that in 20 years it'll be everywhere?
1: Yeah, so um, there's a couple things. So I'll, I'll, I'll mention, I think, two that are sort of near and dear to my heart. One is robotics. Okay, I, I don't think we understand the degree to which the economics for robotics have already crossed a threshold where the components and the ability to create robotics is super compelling right now and you see it in some specialized industries like right like warehousing and the completely robotic peopleless warehouse and some of the things that you'll see Amazon and some other crews doing and everybody's certainly familiar with drones but i think we're going to be shocked in five years' time, certainly 10 years' time, the degree to which we've got robots running around all over the place because the economics of it are are just there. I don't know that we're going to be thrilled with the result, I'll be honest with you, sociologically, but the economics of it are undeniable. So I think robotics is one that we're right on the cusp of. The other one, which it used to have more of that early internet feel, it's now sort of been outed, but crypto, cryptocurrency, which is so very like the frothy, uh, Dot com nuttiness times of the of the late 90s, and there'll be a a lot of churn that comes out of that. Uh, but you can't stop digital money; you just can't stop it. I think actually, if governments of the world had understood, you know, what crypto actually actually represented, um, you might have been able to try and suppress it early on. But nobody really understood what it was. Kind of like the early internet; nobody really got it. So. Nobody really worked to try and suppress it or have you know the, the incumbents who control the existing uh, financial systems. There's maybe been you know some, some attempts to do that, but it's too late now. The genie's out of the bottle. So I think crypto is really like that. It's messy right now. But out of that mess uh, will come digital money. And once digital money is out there, you're not going to be able to stop it.
0: Do you uh, hold any cryptocurrency?
1: I do, yeah. I've been, I've been toying with crypto for years. You know, would that I had toyed with it earlier when it first came out and some of, my, uh, some of my crypto friends and other pioneers in technology started talking to me. I was like, okay, I listen, fine, interesting, I get it, I get how it works. But that was an interesting moment for me because I didn't really get it at first. I mean, I got it, I got what it was, but I didn't really get the impact of it. And then by the time I did get the impact of it, I'm like, am I getting old? that I didn't get that right away? How did I not get that right away?
0: <laughs> oh, the amount of opportunities I turned down to be a part of crypto stuff way back in the day. But I've gotten to talk to like so many of these crypto creators because I did this whole series on crypto stuff. I felt like a monkey talking to a scientist.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's there's some really bright folks in it. The basic concepts are simple enough, but it's like anything to actually take those basics and turn it into a network Really, really fascinating stuff. So that has re-energized me a little bit to say, okay, we've got another, you know, another wave of tech coming. So there's always, look, there's always the next next wave of reinvention, the next wave of disruption. That's the cool thing about
0: being in technology. Oh yeah, how does Smarsh fit into all of that? Where are they at in this cycle?
1: Yeah, so Smarsh has become a leader in uh, in our domain, and I think we we ended up here because people in the very specific vertical that we're in right which is really compliance and compliance data platforms for heavily rated regulated industries like financial services public sector that vertical tends to wait until it's safe right and, and until they move, you, to move to a technology they tend to kind of move together and they tend to wait till it's safe and the legacy tech in the space was all kind of built on uh, private data centers and uh, and on-prem hosted solutions which is an okay way to start out on anything it's not a bad place to start it used to be cool to deal with your own hardware your own data centers your racks it was super fun right and then you get to a certain point of scale where it is not fun anymore because it becomes a liability to try and keep up with this explosion of the global data sphere so in particular we capture, you know, every kind of human communication, rather whether that's email, Slack, Teams, Zoom, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, text, SMS, MMS. Now getting into voice, videos on the horizon. So if you think about the explosion of human communication modalities, WhatsApp, WeChat, right? There's no, there's no end to it in terms terms of the way people connect. So a, you have an explosion of digital communications. B, the richness of those communications is going up. It's not just Textual now. Now you've got pixel data, voice data, you've got big data kind of growing at least geometrically, some would say exponentially. So you got this explosion of content. And in the regulated industry, your retention periods are 5, 10, 15, 20 years. So all of a sudden, let's say you started out building your own little local data store and, you know, you've got your 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 racks of equipment and your rate arrays, and if you're like, oh, I got this cool kind of thing going. All of a sudden, you're into a multi petabyte domain, and an exabyte is on the horizon, and you have to have a geo redundant data store, and you realize that you don't really have the ability to build that out economically, and that's one of the things that's changed now is because of the scale in cloud, the economics of geo distributed compute and geo distributed data stores has shifted in favor of the trillion-dollar infrastructures. They have the really good unit economics. And if you're trying to build that out yourself, you don't have the purchasing power, you don't have the footprint, you don't have the ability to build that out at scale. You can build out anything if you're at you know a, a modest level of scale. But as soon as you get into this multi-petabyte space, you find yourself kind of stuck.
0: Interesting. And so, like comms is really broad where do your customers sort of group give me a couple examples of companies and why they're storing their comms and what type of comms they're like storing
1: well it started out this whole industry started out with email right it was email archiving and there are finra and sec regulations that say hey if you're in a regulated space you have regulated users you're dealing with financial transactions all of this has to be retained for e-discovery litigation audits and just basic regulatory purposes to make sure no one's breaking the law, right? So, simple enough, email, and then, you know, things start to evolve, and you get other communication channels that come on top of that, instant messaging, text, MMS. Then what you have is the clients of these financial services institutions have their own mobile phones and their own way of communicating, and they're sanctioned channels and unsanctioned channels, and a client comes in on an unsanctioned channel, and the bank says... I'm not going to not talk to my customer, right? And tell them, well, we can't do business with you because you use WhatsApp, WeChat. Those are unsanctioned channels for us to chat. So the regulatory envelope keeps getting bigger and bigger, and then the companies involved have to adapt. And that's what really created the opportunity for because Smarsh really handles three pieces of the equation. One, the full fidelity content capture, meaning you need to get all the data, the contextual metadata, you need to understand kind of everything that you can about the communication that happened. So we do the full fidelity capture across all of these different communication platforms including emerging ones. Then we do the retention over, you know, arbitrary periods of time for retaining this data and then we do the analytics on top of it because if you think about the regulatory problem, look at the conversation you and I are having. We'll talk about all sorts of different things. How much of it is of regulatory value? Very very little. So you, you have a, a needle in a haystack problem. Let's say that we were talking about a trade and you were a customer and I was a bank. We might talk about a bunch of things and there might be a very small snippet that was actually had regulatory merit. So you now have this sort of needle in a haystack problem and the haystacks are getting bigger. So you got to have some really intelligent tech for being able to find the needles in the haystack. So that's really the three domains of our business, right? The full fidelity, capture, the retention, and then the analytics to, to find the needles in the haystack.
0: So email, text, those seem pretty obvious because you're like first party in control of them. But for WhatsApp specifically, do they have an API for that? How, how do you actually get that data?
1: Yeah, that's one of the more interesting ones, okay? Because with WhatsApp and WeChat, there are versions where there are publicly available APIs, but that's only a subset of what they offer because if you get certain communication channels like WeChat, they're designed to have secure encrypted communications that you can't monitor, you can't intercept, you can't do a kind of an actual violation of that session. So some of them are harder than others. And when you have to do that sort of man in the middle proxy, it's challenging technologically and you're always wondering about the terms of service on the one hand, and you tend to end up with solutions that are a little bit brittle. Because yeah. you know they can change the protocol, and then all of a sudden, your proxy breaks.
0: Oh yeah. Well, my first thought was I was in the uh, financial services. Industry before all the amazing tools today existed, so we would have to do all of these crazy workarounds to screen scrape, and we built all these systems and all of these things to get the data out of their accounts. We'd log in, download PDFs, extract it. And so when I was thinking about like WhatsApp, I was like, how would you do that? There's so many ways running through my mind of <laughs> yeah things that you could. There's do. a lot of different techniques that people use to do it,
1: but it, they're, they're all you know various different flavors
0: of brittle. Right. Exactly. And so then you have to have teams and then maintain those and built in... Then it's a sustaining engineering problem. That's exactly right. Yes, exactly. At least it's tied to compliance, which is something people have to do. So the market is is there because if it was a much smaller market, it'd be a lot harder. Yep. So how did you even get involved with all of this in Smarsh? How did you meet the team there?
1: It was um, purely by accident. I had uh, exited my last technology engagement uh, after a private equity transaction, I was taking some time off and motorcycling up the West Coast. And a buddy of mine who was a CEO in the K1 portfolio said, hey, you should meet with these guys. So I met Sujit, one of the K1 principals. He runs operations for K1. And Sujit lives in Portola Valley. And I zipped through on my motorcycle and we hung out for coffee and we're just chatting it up and he started to tell me about this merger of two companies in the compliance domain one an smb mid-market uh, company and the other a enterprise right in the same vertical the same solution space but the tip of the pyramid versus kind of the fat middle and the bottom of smb and mid-market and they were about to put these two companies together one was legacy smarsh the other was a company called actance and they were looking for some help on kind of product strategy and technology. And it was all very interesting. I'm, you know, in my motorcycle garb and have a week's worth of growth on my face. I might have even had hair back then. So I said, yeah, you know, it's interesting. And so by the end of the conversation, Sujeet says, so what's your um, availability? I was like, well, see that motorcycle over there in the parking lot? That's mine. And what I'm going to do is get back on my motorcycle, finish my trip, In fact, what I ended up doing was parking my motorcycle in the Bay Area, flying back home and getting involved because this acquisition was right on the cusp of happening. So I kind of got pulled in a lot sooner than I thought. And that's when I met the then CEO of Smart Brian Kramer and we hit it off and on we went. It's all about timing. These things are sort of serendipitous.
0: Yes. And often, you know, we talk on the show or people talk to me outside of the show about, you know, relationships and the importance of the, like, importance of them long term. This individual that pulled you in, can you tell me a little bit more about, like, how did they come to the thought that, like, you would be a good fit? How did they know and trust that you would be right for this? I think it it
1: usually is based on, relationship to a degree, right? And who are the folks that you've been in a foxhole with? So Sujit, the K1 principal I met with, had a relationship with this CEO, this portfolio CEO. And Sujit after talking to me, calls this portfolio CEO and says, Hey, will you vouch for this guy? Does he have what it takes to get the job done? And this portfolio CEO is a longtime colleague of mine and we did some great work together in, in the B2B space. And so you know when you get that kind of resonance where you've got, you know, people whose whose work you respect and whose character you respect and it that network effect. I think that's probably where, you know, the way most of these placements and it's not that there isn't a place for, you know, executive recruiting and certainly that happens and certainly I've I've had positive experiences there as well, but it's really the things you weren't planning on. Like I was I had no intention of starting a new gig when I got involved with Smarsh not at that moment anyway. I was just kind of airing my brain out. But, you know, things happen. Electrons fire, paths cross, and then all of a sudden you're uh, you're back in pocket. And that was coming on five years ago now.
0: Wow. What's been the big changes in the past five years since you joined? Yeah, Smarsh has changed a
1: lot, actually, because we have grown both organically and inorganically, and we saw some white space. And this kind of goes back to our earlier conversation on what's kind of unique about Smarsh and what is sort of internet-like in its innovation in this domain. And in this case, the obvious innovation that the rest of the competition and the industry as a whole had not embraced will not seem terribly innovative, but it's public cloud infrastructure, okay? Mm. Now, in the compliance domain, public cloud, until the past couple years, had a scary and inappropriate ethos for the compliance folks, because it's public the word public does not help the uh, public cloud providers when they're going into the compliance domain because it sounds like it's public right you know anybody can get access to my data so when you get into those kind of inherently multi-tenant infrastructures right? And heavily virtualized infrastructures. There was, I would say, some caution on the part of the financial institutions in terms of getting involved in in that kind of infrastructure. But Smarsh saw some white space there and said, look, nobody has actually built a cloud-based compliance platform, right? Nobody had actually done that. So we went down that path and actually built out, you know, kind of a multi-cloud paths that would allow us to hit you know, multiple public clouds and uh, scale horizontally with very aggressive unit economics. So it was a little bit of an odd experience for me because when you get involved with a new space, I'm always kind of trying to look to my right and my left and over my shoulder and say, okay, who are the fast movers? Who are the competitors in this space? As we moved into cloud and there was nothing on my left, nothing on my right, nothing behind me. And at that point, you're like, okay, there's probably a reason for that. Why aren't other folks kind of rushing in? And I think people were not prepared for the shift in the global data sphere explosion and where private cloud and private data centers were still, I would say, the de facto safe Choice for financial services for a compliance platform, and I think it snuck up on everybody that you're going to have this explosion in content. So by the time we had actually deployed our public cloud platform, that we I would say we might have been six months early to market, maybe nine months early to market. At first, you're like, oh geez, did we innovate too soon? Which has been my weakness as an innovator is to be to be in front ahead of the market and people might think that's a good thing but it's not a good thing you don't want to be ahead of the market all you end up doing is you you deploy a bunch of capital you educate the market somebody else comes along and says that's a great idea they hit it with the exact right timing so i was a little concerned at first that i maybe you know jumped to the next curb here too quickly i think we were maybe six to nine months early but then all of a sudden it became really clear that folks who were doing private data center or doing on-prem archives, they're all hitting the wall in various ways. And it just became a scale, scale issue. It's like there's no way to scale it. So our innovation in the space was really to say, we're gonna take compliance platforms to the public cloud, we're gonna bet on that. And I would say our timing was just about right, maybe a tad early.
0: And so today our most year Customers coming from people who had rolled their own product and they're hitting a, a scale now in which they need to you know, offload that to someone else? Or is it companies that like are just growing to the point? Well, they, I guess they've always had to do it. If they're in a compliant-related industry, they have to do it basically from day one, right? That's correct. Everyone has a data problem
1: that is accretive. So it's a question of where does it live? The folks who are in the most pain are the folks who built this out on-prem. Because when you you start to get your own kind of infrastructure footprint, and remember this has to be geo redundant. But it, it's one thing to build out a footprint; it's another to say, okay, I'm going to have, you know, an active passive topology where I pay twice for something I. Only, only use once. And then if you try to actually get like triple redundant, you're done. Your economics are toast. You can't build it out yourself in a cost effective way. So the people on prem are the ones who are hurting the most. The folks who are using kind of vendors with private data center and, you know, their own sort of brick and mortar data centers, they're getting a little bit further. But I think what happens there is they start to realize that, well, wait a minute, I'm I'm captive I'm now captive with a multi-petabyte problem in someone's private data center. And if I ever have to move it, it's going to take years. And when you start, your planning horizon becomes years and realizing that, you know, again, the, the data sphere problem is only going up faster. Uh, all of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, I got I to gotta park my data once and forever in a place where it can, it can grow. I've got good unit economics. I've got good information security and i don't have to keep thinking about migrating it i have to land this plane at one point and that's where really the trillion dollar infrastructures are the only safe place to actually end up landing that data so i think everyone's cycling around to that now it, it varies but the folks on prem are the ones who are
0: feeling the pain the most and so if there are any compliance related folks on prem listening to the show right now what would the next step for them be Well, so it's really just all about your data trajectory, right? You have to do the math and say, how
1: much data am I ingesting? How much data am I retaining? Now, some of the folks that we work with, the retention challenge is aggravated by the challenge with actually purging and deleting old data. Some of these older systems... Uh, Because these archival systems are designed for retention, and because they're designed to ingest quickly, they're not designed to delete quickly, you actually have a fair few number of folks who are retaining data simply because they don't have enough horsepower or enough certainty to be able to delete. So what you will get is this problem is kind of growing accretively and, and there's no real way out of it. As a matter of fact, we have folks who move data to our platform just so they can get enough clarity in order to do their deletions, right? And they're purging and then kind of move the platform forward. So that's perhaps an extreme case, but not uncommon. It's actually fairly common that you have these archival platforms where uh, deletion or what's called disposition is uh, is challenging. So for those folks, I would say, look, the longer you wait, the worse it gets. There's, I'm, I'm not sure there's any Uh, that that's not meant to be scary it's just meant to be kind of brutally honest if you have a data gravity problem in your infrastructure or a data gravity problem in someone else's infrastructure the longer you wait the worse it gets so there are some simple techniques cut over to a strategic place you don't necessarily have to migrate all your content If you can just cut your day-forward data over to something strategic, then you can age out and delete out, and you don't necessarily have to do a big multi-petabyte migration. You can, and we have folks who do both. We have some folks who say, hey, look, I'm going to migrate everything. We have some folks who say, hey, I'm going to be split-brain, right? Yesterday's data is over here. Tomorrow's data is over here. I'm going to age out. And maybe once it's small enough, after aging out, I'll take the remnant, right, and I'll pop it over once the, the lines kind of cross in terms of the economics of moving that data over. But I think the most important thing is get a strategic data foundation now. Don't wait. The bigger the problem gets, the harder to solve, the more expensive it is to solve. And the economics of it are just, they're not overwhelming to do it, right? Just get started with your day forward data. And then when you you can decide how you want to handle your multiple petabytes, but everyone, at least the larger institutions need to understand they're headed toward an exabyte problem domain. Right. So if you're heading toward exabyte problem domain, get yourself a nice foundation to build on. And then, you know, you can work your way there over time.
0: Okay. Cool. As I go about my life, if I want to casually bring stuff up to like CTO and technology leader about what you guys do, should I just be like, hey, you should just check out Smarsh and and take a look at what they're doing in the compliance space? Or is there any sort of thing I could say that'd be useful to catch their attention?
1: Well, I think the, um, you know, the why Smarsh is really what's, what's unique, and what's unique is that cloud-based platform for compliance that kind of makes it easy to get started. We toy around with non-regulated verticals occasionally, right? Folks who are saying, hey, I'm not in the regulated space, but I do want to be able to retain my data, and I do want to be able to find needles in haystacks for other reasons. I would say, you know, take a peek at your data trajectory and ask yourself how important your data is to your business. You're I'm talking about communications data now, not transactional data. This is you know strictly human comms. And what we're finding for some folks is that over and above regulatory use cases, there are use cases where people want to understand the sentiment and behavior of their interactions with their customers. So can you do sentiment analysis on yeah, you can, you know, you can say now, now that I'm looking for needles in haystacks, now that I have, you know, a combination of technologies that let me actually do kind of some proper AI analytics on this content, then it might become pretty interesting to say what other behaviors, even non-regulatory behaviors, are meaningful to your business. What are the attributes of a particularly successful sales rep? right it'd be interesting to know so it can take you in a lot of different places we tend to focus primarily on the regulatory use cases and secondarily on the behavioral use cases but depending on the folks you're speaking with if it's regulatory it's a no-brainer you to take a peek at smart if it's non-regulatory then uh it's maybe depending on what you're looking for
0: pretty cool and those things like sentiment analysis are those things that you guys build are you api open apis let them build how does that work
1: yeah, so uh, that's a really interesting question because a lot of our machine learning tech, we incubated in very kind of bespoke deploys uh, with a tool-based approach where we provided the tools and worked with enterprises where their data scientists and their engineers would you know try to build the right model for finding a certain kind of um, behavior. We learned a lot through that. Uh, first of all, we learned that um, the vast majority of mach- machine learning deployments in the enterprise space are tech-enabled services to help solve a bespoke problem, which is not a bad way to learn, but it's also not a great business model. And if you look at a lot of the players in this space, there's a lot of bespoke, tool-based, tech-enabled services out there. So we looked at that and said, look, it's interesting, you learn a lot, but what we really want is to productize this machine learning capability. So one of the innovations that Smarsh has is that we've taken our learnings and embodied those in our own proprietary machine learning models and proprietary artificial intelligence analytics. And we have so much experience with this communications data and these specific regulatory use cases, that we're able to package them up in a way that is actually productized and reusable across customers. Uh, That's where you really crack the nut on value in terms of a business driver anyway, because you you have to be able to create leverage and the leverage comes from reuse and repeatability. And if you've gotten deep in the data, And you know the models that know how to find what you're looking for in that data, so we now package these things up into what we call uh, scenarios or intelligence scenarios, where we combine a number of techniques, not just machine learning, uh, but lexical scanning and data classification and machine learning, all combined, right, into one intelligence engine that says... I know what you're looking for, right? If you're looking for a gifts and entertainment violation in this kind of communication channel, this kind of modality where this is how, you know, the semantics of how people uh, converse, because remember the semantics of an email versus the semantics of a text versus the semantics of a voice conversation, very different, right? You have very different words that you use. So if you kind of start to do that semantic mapping with some of your technology and can say, hey, for this modality, this kind of behavior you're looking for, we have an intelligence engine that can find that. And that, I think, um, it goes from machine learning as a, as a hobby or a science experiment uh, into machine learning as a, a kind of reproducible
0: business model. Yeah, that sounds like you guys have a lot of fun over there in the tech department. <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy what we do, yeah. but, you know, it's fun. It keeps us busy. As we wrap up, I want to talk a little bit about leadership and obviously the company's large, it's growing, doing really interesting, what I personally think sound like fun things. What do you tell the next generation, the leaders that are coming up, people who you're speaking to within your within your company, uh, like how to stand out or what you look for behaviorally or culturally so that they can get ahead in their career?
1: Yeah, great question. Uh, we could do a whole session on that one. So, Leadership really matters, and it's it's variously defined. But uh, to be a leader, uh, and particularly in this space, uh, first of all, technology is kind of the science of change. And if you want to really be good at it, um, you have to change frequently, right? So if you really want to get good in tech, you've got to really kind of ride that knife edge of the change and the change management, uh, and not if you. If you have a static mindset, and um, I think when I started out at NASA, I had had a lot of energy, had a lot of intensity, and I was a bit of a perfectionist, right? And perfectionism uh, actually can can work against you. And I had an excellent mentor there who saw that my perfectionism was holding me back, and he said, "Greg, make your mistakes. Okay, that's how we learn." If you want to be perfect and this is how he got my attention because I wanted to be perfect if you want to be perfect try not to make the same mistake twice and that pierced my skull right I completely got what he was saying so you've got a very dynamic dynamic industry where there's a lot of adaptation there's a lot of experimentation and leading means getting really good at that experimentation and adaptation uh, because at the end of the day it's empirical what we're doing, um, even in 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 software, is it's very data driven, empirical, and you have to get really good at being able to suss out what has value and what does not have value. And if you're going to lead, you can't just execute, right? Managers can just execute. If you're going to lead, you need to know where you're going, right? And the only way you're going to know where you're going is if you're plotting the trajectory and trying to say, well, what's the value point? And I think in technology people do confuse leadership with execution and say, look, I'm a really good engineer. I really know how to execute. I can solve any problems. Like, okay, awesome. Leading means knowing what problem you want to solve. And how do you assess that? And that has to be done in the context of the marketplace, right? Because we are all working for the marketplace. And you can have the greatest ideas and the greatest technology. And if no one will cut a check for that great idea or great technology, then it's, it's either education or research, but it's not actually going to be a career builder. A career builder is the intersection of that technology and market traction. And so I think all up and coming leaders in technology need to be a little bit of a product manager, a little bit of product strategy and understand, I gotta have strong product market fit. If I don't have strong product market fit, I can do a lot of cool stuff. I've done a lot of cool stuff. I did a lot of cool stuff in the robotics space early on with some drone tech that was obviously going to change the world. And it did, but it wasn't my company that changed the world. (laughs) But I had the tech. I had the tech for it, right? So you got to get that product market fit and you got to get the market timing just right. That becomes the better part of leadership because if you don't end up with a successful economic model, then the technology becomes irrelevant. And one of the hard things I think for technologists to learn as they get into this is that you need enough technology, just enough. It's not all about the technology. It's all about the product market fit. And you need just enough tech and then continuously churn and churn and churn once once you've got that that traction and that impedance match with the marketplace. That really is number one. Then there's a lot of other domains, you know, pieces of leadership in terms of uh Team building and execution and methodology and, and 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 that. But I think number one is make sure
0: you're building the right thing. I love it, and I know we're coming up on time. I think that if you're into it, we should consider having you on for like a pure leadership podcast. When I come across people like you, I'm like, all right, we got to have them back on. Let's do we it. Do a pure leadership episode because you got some really good ideas. Uh, that's one of my favorite
1: topics. And it, there's such a need for it. So I've got a lot of passion on the topic and uh, we're all students of leadership. So I'm happy to share the things I've learned today. And I'm sure tomorrow I'll be
0: learning a few more. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. We made a podcast, Greg. How do you feel? Outstanding. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn